This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Remnant Radio. We've got an exciting episode with Dr. Sam Storms. Uh, we're going to be discussing the best arguments for the gifts of the Spirit. Last week, you'll realize that we we did a video doing the cessationist arguments and, and wrestling and engaging with those arguments. But in this episode, we're going to pick up the best arguments for the gifts of the Spirit. So you guys stay tuned. It's going to be a great episode. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, man, this video is going to be really exciting. We've got Sam back with us. It's not in our studio. We're here at Woods Edge Church. We're at a conference, a pastor's conference. Uh, just finished a panel discussion that we'll be publishing on Remnant Radio probably next week. Really great content that's coming out from there. Uh, but we we're going to talk about, man, good cessation or good continuationist arguments. Before we do that, I want to remind you that Remnant Radio is entirely crowdfunded. So if you've been blessed by this video or other videos we've produced and you want to give, there's links in the description for PayPal or Patreon. Get extra content on Patreon for as low as five bucks a month. You can give it PayPal at any time as your heart so leads. Yeah. Uh, and if you have any content that you're like, hey, I can't afford that, we'll send it to you for free. Just but, email me. At but they can at also give more than five a month, can't they? They could give as much $777. As- I'm just kidding. That's uh, the word. Anyway. So uh, Patreon, you can give uh, you can give 20 bucks on Patreon a yep. month if you want. and uh, Or if you do PayPal, choose your amount, and it's a one-time gift. Yeah, so. that's right. Uh, and and definitely encourage you guys to hit that subscribe button because we have just a lot of great content. You just mentioned that panel discussion uh, with Doctor Storms, whom we will call Sam, right. and uh, and then uh, Matt Chandler, Jack Deere, and Jeff Wells, who pastors Woods Edge Church here in Houston. So great discussion about the gifts. So make sure you hit that subscribe button. Uh, but without further ado, let's jump in. Mm-hmm. We've dismantled i think was the word we used uh, obliterated obliterated decimated. crushed Cru- i think it was crushed so you know what some one of the youtube commenters was like you guys didn't crush them you nicely disassembled them <laughs> <laughs> we'll take that that, that sounds like an, complimentary an app description yeah. yeah so uh so sam we're we're not disassembling anything today now we're building the case for continuationism and i see you oh sorry josh who told me to be careful with his oh, microphone okay. um I see you made a delightfully uh, full and robust list of continuationist arguments. So, uh, so we'd love to just talk through those one by one. Before we do, just if you could tell us a little bit uh, about yourself. Oh, I feel cool. like Sam's been on the show enough. We almost don't need to do it. But just <laughs> nutshell, yeah. tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, gosh, I've pastored in Texas, in Oklahoma, in Missouri, in Illinois, uh, back to Missouri, now in Oklahoma, been at Bridgeway Church for 13, a little over 13 years now. Um, and for those who don't know, um, I'm stepping down as soon as I finish the Book of Romans, which will be sometime in the late summer of next year. And 
Michael Roundtree is coming to take my role as to be the senior pastor of Bridgeway and lead it into great and glorious things that I never could achieve. Well, Amen. he said take well, a role. You didn't you didn't get upset with him when he said take it. And I said, anyway, that's <laughs> inside joke. You'll get we, that when that video releases, so that panel discussion. The scepter will pass. There you go. Uh, yeah. The baton, if it's you an will. Honor. It's an uh, honor. Yeah, super excited for that transition. Proud of Michael, and it's going to be a, a fun time. Can we let's let's talk about the best arguments for continuationism? Where would you start? Would you just agree with Shriner? Or? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, love Tom. <laughs> Sam rethinks on the show. You know what? Maybe I'm cessationist. I'm going to go with the cessationist argument and go. You know, All right. this may sound strange, but I, I mean this seriously. I think perhaps the single best argument for continuationism are the very bad arguments for cessationism. Yeah. Wow. In other words. I, I simply have to ask the question, why would anybody embrace cessationism? From reading scripture, now you may say, well, I've never seen it happen. My, you know, We address those issues, experience, abuses, all that. But if you're just reading the Bible, what argument for cessationism could you genuinely and legitimately come up with that just has no answer, has no response? So I would start right there. I just don't see any good arguments for cessationism, so it's almost like the burden of proof rests within to tell me why I shouldn't accept the Word of God for what it says about the nature of these gifts. So that's where I'd begin. Um, by the way, guys, jump in and sure, elaborate man. and refute and respond anytime you want. Um, one other argument. Um, we talked about this in our discussion of cessationism. And cessationists have always argued, almost to a man, that uh, the the primary purpose of spiritual gifts of a miraculous nature, whether it's healing, tongues, prophecy, or whatever, was to attest or bear witness to or to authenticate the truth of the gospel message. Mm -hmm. I don't have any pushback to that. I, I, I'm happy to say, yeah, that was one of the purposes. I don't, I'm not going to say it's the purpose, the primary. One of the purposes of spiritual gifts was to do that very thing. But then my response to that is, why can't that happen today as much as it did back then? Right. Lots um, of people still need to be saved. Exactly. Right. Why, why cannot somebody who's wrestling with the, the claims of Scripture and of the gospel, and they witness or are the recipient of some miraculous work of the Holy Spirit? And remember, most of the people Jesus healed weren't believers. They didn't follow him. Mm -hmm. So would that not bear witness to the truth of the gospel today on the mission fields around the world? As much as it did in the first century. Yeah, yeah, and and cessationists that they uh, and, and by the way, just kind of quick clarification of terms. Uh, if you're not familiar, Good call. cessationism means the ceasing of certain spiritual gifts, sometimes categorized as sign gifts, those ones that seem more miraculous. Uh, but you know, as we've talked about before, they're all miraculous mm -hmm. because First Corinthians twelve, every spiritual gift, including teaching, is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. But the cessationists will say these ceased sometime after the death of the last apostle or after the completion of canon or they just kind of uh, gradually fizzled out over time. So that's the cessationist. The continuationist, sometimes called charismatic, believes that all the gifts of the Holy Spirit uh, elaborated upon in the Scripture are still for today. Yeah. And so the cessationist uh, is going to say, well, we needed to attest to the gospel in those early days to establish a foundation to the church, and they'll point to Ephesians 2.20. And for that, I would just refer to you guys to our video last week where Sam 
kindly dismantled uh, or disassembled the cessationist <laughs> arguments. And so we talked about Ephesians 2.20. But, but one of them, the, the one that you just addressed now, was basically one of the major cessationist arguments yeah. that, that doesn't hold water. Let's shift maybe to, to positive continuationist, sure. like, uh, so going to the text, this text seems to teach that continuationism sure. is for today. Well, one of the things that I noticed when I be, really began to explore this, and by the way, I, uh, I kind of have to credit our good friend Jack Deere because... When I first uh, talked with Jack um, and I was giving him my cessationist arguments and he asked this deeply profound question that only a PhD could possibly (laughs) decipher, he said, where's that in the Bible? Ah. (laughs) Uh, What? (laughs) And he said, where's that in the Bible? And um, he left me speechless and I said, "Uh, I don't think it's there. So. So I looked in the Bible. What does the Bible say about the purpose of spiritual gifts? Yes, it can bear witness to and attest to the message of the gospel, but we don't want to reduce the purpose of gifts to that alone. That's the error of reductionism. So, for example, there are numerous texts that talk about how the works of the Spirit through gifts, signs, and wonders glorify God. They bring honor and praise to the Lord. Um, Secondly, we're told that they build up or edify the church. Uh, when you read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, uh, it's over and over and over again. All of Paul's instruction is grounded in the reality that the reason why God's given these gifts is to build you up. That's why what happens in the corporate assembly has to be intelligible. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also, we see spiritual gifts and miracles serving an evangelistic purpose. Now, let's be clear. I'm not saying that a sign or a wonder can cause somebody to be born again. But I like the way John Piper put it. He said, signs and wonders can shatter the shell of cynicism within which the human heart sometimes is hidden. And it kind of breaks open and opens your eyes. I mean, you think uh, in Acts where Peter raised that uh, girl from the dead and news of that spread throughout the city and the whole city turned to faith in Jesus. So they can serve an evangelistic purpose. And then finally, when you look at why did Jesus exercise gifts of healing and driving out demons and uh, healing the broken, cleansing the leper? In almost every case, it says it's because he had compassion for them. He loved them. Spiritual gifts are an expression of love, first of God to us, and then of us to one another as we exercise them faithfully. Love that. So all the purposes for the gifts that existed in the New Testament would still apply today, sure. which makes a positive case for continuationism. Right. So so I would say, I I'll, I'll, I say this often to my cessationist friends, I'll just concede for the sake of argument that these gifts and signs and wonders no longer serve to attest to the gospel message. What do you do about all the other purposes? Mm-hmm. You, just, you, you can't dismiss them. Now, again, I do believe that gifts can serve that purpose yet today, but just for the sake of argument, I'll give you that one. What do you do with all these other purposes? Right. So let's let's touch on this one, and this is one I think I picked up from your book, but in First Corinthians one seven, mm-hmm. uh, in First Corinthians one seven, the specific verse, but it talks about maybe it's best to read the whole passage there. I gave thanks uh, to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you in, you are enriched in Him in all speech and all and uh, all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, there are a couple of Continue. verses. Continue. Oh, don't oh, stop okay. there. Keep okay, read okay, verse okay. 8. Okay, read verse 8. Uh, uh, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? Right. So I, I think it's important. People might not know what's the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Paul says it clearly. It's the day when yes. he appears. Yes. Uh, so, so there are a couple of verses that seem to have a time stamp on the gifts of the Spirit. First Corinthians chapter one verse seven has a time stamp. It's when the Lord appears. First uh, Corinthians thirteen, when we see we uh, we'll see face to face. Right. Uh, Ephesians chapter four, uh, until we're all built up in the fullness of the faith and knowledge and stature. You've been looking at my notes. He, he's just copying your notes. He's oh, trying to I steal can't read your that. thunder. Y'all, y'all, y'all look at that and tell me. I, y'all can read that. So, so we have these timestamp verses. What do we, what do, we do with this timestamp? That's true um, because that's a big issue is how long. Are they perpetual or do they persist until the time of the second coming? And, of course, cessationists argue, as you mentioned, Michael, maybe, some, maybe they died out early in the church in the first century, maybe when John the Apostle passed away or – when the can, completed canon of Scripture was acknowledged in the late part of the 4th century. Um, but we have timestamps. I mean, explicitly, people says, how long will they last? Well, I'm looking at Ephesians 4. It's until, right there, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Nobody's so arrogant as to claim that the church has at any point reached that stage of maturity and growth in Christ so that's a very explicit one. The same one with 1 Corinthians 1. It's you've got these gifts as you await the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't – you would think that would Paul, if he was a cessationist, would have said, well, you know, we don't really know how long they'll last. Um, it's most, more than likelihood, more than likely the, uh, they'll die out sometime uh, before the return of Jesus. But that's not what he says. He, he links this to the second coming of our Lord. 1 Corinthians 13, which most cessationists acknowledge, is the clearest, most explicit defense of continuationism that we have in the Bible. And that one's probably worth diving into. Um, you know, actually, before we do, Sam, are, do, you, do you get pushback on these specific verses, 1 Corinthians 1, 7, and Ephesians 4, 11 to 13? Uh, so, for instance, I'm I'll be. I'll put on cessationist hat for a minute. I'm going to take it off immediately after this question, but uh, I'll, I'll put it on for just a moment. Uh, do you ever hear something like, "Well, he's just remarking on the fact that they are waiting for the second coming of Jesus, but it doesn't necessarily say that they'll be around till the second coming of mm-hmm. Jesus." Uh, do you ever hear something like that, or or an equivalent type of thing in Ephesians four? Well, I do, but let's remember the man who wrote First Corinthians one also wrote First Corinthians thirteen. So Paul knew what he was saying in 1 Corinthians 13 when he said that these gifts will continue until the arrival of the perfect, that consummate state of affairs when we suddenly see face-to-face and know as we are right. known. So Paul knew that the consummation was coming, and he says rather explicitly that uh, these gifts will continue to operate until that time. So I have to look at chapter 1, chapter 13, say they came from the same apostle, he knew what he was saying in both texts. How do we put them together? Right. So 1 Corinthians 1.7, we might put in the category of very strongly uh, very strongly suggestive of continuationism, and then 1 Corinthians 13 as overtly teaching continuation. Yes. Would you say that's about accurate? Yes. Okay. So I would read, if, if there's any ambiguity or, or question in people's mind about chapter 1, read it in the light of chapter 13. So let's do that. Yeah. Okay. So chapter 13, how about I'll read verses, uh, do you want to do 8 through 13? 
Okay, why don't we do that? And then, um, so I'll read those verses. And then Sam, can you just exegete these for us? Exegete the heck out of those <laughs> verses, man. So, uh, so love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Yeah, and uh, as, as you know, cessationists have, have made every effort possible to contend that the perfect there is a reference uh, to the completion of the canon of Scripture. Uh, or if not that, then it refers to the uh, maturity of the early church, that they attained a level of growth and understanding that these gifts ceased to be necessary for them. And of course, my immediate response to that is, well, if that's true, then wh- uh, why is it that the gift of teaching continues, which they all admit it does, and teaching is precisely for the purpose of helping you grow up even more into maturity in Christ. So that argument just doesn't, doesn't work very well. So I think the perfect people have said, oh, it's the second coming of Jesus. I don't think that I think it's the fruit of the second coming. I think he's talking about the consummate state of perfection. When we are glorified, we're living in the presence of Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. We see face to face Old Testament language for the beatific vision. Uh, We move from the state of childhood, which Paul says basically is this present age into manhood, which is the age to come. And we move from partial knowledge into full knowledge. So it, I don't know how, and again, most cessationists are now saying, you're right. We, we've, we've tried to use this passage in a way that's just simply illegitimate. Okay, so, so now that cessationists are recognizing that they had been using it in an illegitimate way, what are they saying now? Because they're holding on to cessationism, even though their admission seems to point to the fact that it does overtly teach continuationism. So what are some of the things that you've heard on that? Crickets. Crickets. Seriously, I I don't, you know, Tom in his book, my dear friend, I love him, respect him. He's an infinitely greater scholar than I'll ever hope to be. Um, he just acknowledges this is the one text that uh, would likely bring me over to the continuationist side. He's, and it doesn't appear that he has an answer for it other than, his fallback, which we've discussed before, and that is if I acknowledge that revelatory gifts like prophecy and word of knowledge continue up until the second coming, he feels that compromises the finality and the sufficiency of Scripture, and that's what keeps him from, I think, embracing that view. But he does allow for what he calls impressions. Yes. Acts 21, that God could speak by an impression that could be misinterpreted. We won't get into all that. We've We've done episodes with him, so... Yeah, uh, so Josh, I, I, I want to another back, question. Another another kind of time stamped verses in Acts two talks about in the last days. Like mm-hmm. that, there's a biblical context to the phrase in the last days. Are we in the last days now? And wouldn't that indicate if we are that we're in those days where prophecy and tongues are happening? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great passage. Uh, I didn't have it in my list. I'm, Man, ah, I got another one. You got one. Sam didn't they have get. it last time. We were like I, in the five I seconds he took to make that list right before. Yeah, the, that's you know. true. <laughs> now, <laughs> now I don't. Now, so the point that Josh <laughs> is making is when you look at the language of the latter days or last days in the New Testament, 
contrary to what many people think, it's not just that season of time, a few years or however, immediately prior to the second coming. It's the entire inter-Advent age, the, mm-hmm. the age between the exaltation of Jesus to the right hand of the Father and his second coming to receive his people unto himself. We are in the last days. Peter was in the last days. Paul was. We are as well. And Peter is describing there what happens in the last days. You, dreams, visions, prophecy. You can read it in Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and following. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sam, could you help us understand? I, I've heard people refer to, I mean, sometimes they'll talk about it. I mean, there's the last days. Sometimes they'll call it the church age. Sometimes I hear it called the age of the spirit. And this passage will be pointed to as uh, though, hey, there was a difference before the first uh, advent of Christ and then after Christ came and then Pentecost, everything changed. There was this age of the spirit and we read about prophecy here. Can you help us understand the kind of Old Testament, New Testament phenomenon? Because I think that if this is a whole age that didn't end after the the first, uh, you know, the last apostle died or at the conclusion of can, if this is a whole age, then then it would suggest that these things continue. So, so how do you understand this phrase, age of the spirit? Well, when I've heard it used, I simply have, I've acknowledged that's, that's okay. It's, but we, prior to Pentecost, the Holy Spirit existed. He wasn't, he, was he didn't come into being on the day of Pentecost. There are numerous texts in the old Testament that talk about the existence and the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. But there was a difference uh, with Pentecost comes what we call the democratization of the spirit. The spirit comes on all flesh, Jew and Gentile, male and female, young and old, not just prophets, priests, kings, and military commanders. So I do believe people in the old covenant were born again. I do believe that regeneration, I mean, Moses himself or God commanded through Moses, uh, circumcise your hearts, not just your flesh is a reference to, I think, being born again. Um, so, but the spirit of God did not dwell permanently on a daily empowering basis, uh, believers in the Old Covenant. It was oftentimes a temporary anointing, as was the case with Saul. The Spirit of God lifted from him. That's why David cried out in Psalm 51, take not thy spirit from me. And he's not saying, oh Lord, don't cast me out of the kingdom. He's saying, I know you anointed me with an extraordinary power by your spirit to fulfill the responsibilities of being king of Israel. Don't lift that from me the way you did from Saul. Yeah. So I, I think it's okay to call it the age of the spirit, as long as we understand that doesn't mean that he was absent or non-existent prior yeah, to Pentecost. Absolutely. So I've got a question about Mark 16. As long as we're talking about good arguments for continuationism, I think it's worth saying, should we use Mark 16 because of the textual variant that's present? In the Pentecostal circles that I ran in, that was their like go to. These signs will follow those who believe. If mm-hmm. you believe, this is gonna follow. They'll handle them snakes. But then every cessationist would go. That ain't in the original manuscripts. We don't but care. But it and and just for our viewers, it, it talks about they will lay hands on sick and the sick, and they'll get well. They'll yep. speak in other tongues. They'll drink deadly poison. It will not hurt them at all, uh, etc. So it seems to speak of charismatic sort of sign and wonder type things happening through every yeah. believer. So what do you make of Mark 16? Can that be admissible in court? Not in my opinion. Yeah. Now, again, I'm not a textual critic, don't claim to be, but I've read the best textual critics, and I see the vast majority of them who have a high view of Scripture do not believe that the end of Mark in chapter mm-hmm. 16 is part of the original text. In most Bibles, you'll see a marginal um, gloss, a little paragraph that explains mm-hmm. why that is the case. Yeah. Uh, now, 
Having said that, could it be that it was introduced by a, a later scribe or scribes because they observed the practices of the early church mm-hmm. and that they injected that back into the text? Now, why would they do that? I'm, I'm Again, I'm not a textual critic, so I can't answer that question. Um, but it's interesting, by the way, Josh, you said that this was a go-to text for many in the kind of the classical Pentecostal world. I'm wondering if since it says, and these signs shall follow, that that's where people got the idea that there are things called sign gifts. <laughs> there aren't texts that talk about sign gifts. Now, it is true that when the man in Acts 3 was healed, Peter said this was a sign to you, but it was a sign to you of the reality of who Jesus is. But there's no such thing as sign gifts as if somehow there's a class of gifts that serve to signify or point to some truth and that they have, because of that reason, now disappeared from the church. So you've got Mark 16 that talks about these signs will follow, but you also have tongues as a sign for the unbeliever, right? So you've got some of these texts that I could see, again, putting together to say, okay, we're using these as, again, if, if the argument for the cessation is as apostolic sign gifts, which is a category that we reject, it's on the basis that these are signs for unbelievers to believe the message being preached. And if that's the case, why then did Paul always pray in tongues in his private devotions, which he said, Praise I God. do more frequently than all yeah. you tongue-happy Corinthians combined? Yeah. Um, why does he say that the one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself? Um, so Paul, nowhere, why does he say in the corporate gathering of the body, you know, do not forbid the speaking in tongues. So the fact of the matter is, if if tongues are only or even primarily a sign for unbelievers, why is it that in the book of Acts, the, tongues is only mentioned three times in the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. We know what Acts 2 is. Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 19, tongues are manifest only in the presence of believers. There mm-hmm. are no unbelievers present. Yeah. So... Yeah. By the way, there's a one other, just following up, I don't, don't want this to slip, Michael. You said, uh, how do they respond to these time-stamped statements? Ephesians 4. The only argument I've heard to explain the until is, well, what Paul is saying is that the fruit of the ministry of those first century gifts and in the form of the apostolic writings, that's what continues until the yeah. building up. Yeah. And, closing but but that... That also brings up another question, which is the continuationist versus cessationist hermeneutic. Because if we want to go back to, if we want to accept the the notion that um, that the way we interpret the hermeneutic, the way we interpret the Bible is re- is reliant upon how the original readers would have interpreted it, and even further back, how the author would have intended it. Mm-hmm. Do cessationists accept a different hermeneutic than that? Maybe unintentionally. On those verses, I would say unintentionally, yes. Yeah. By the way, my phone is buzzing, so don't let that bother. This is real, folks. We're not. There's no fakery here. When a phone, my wife is trying to call me, and I'm going to ignore her and call her back later. All right. Now I'll I'll edit that part out. Yeah, for sure. For for your sake. No, you're good in God's glory. I've been been married almost 50 years. Ann and I can take it. Okay. So getting back. Yes, I think sometimes that is the case. But when you think about Ephesians 4, where in Ephesians 4, 11 and following does it talk about documents that these people wrote and that these are what will perpetuate until the end, but not... Jesus, Paul said that Jesus has given gifted people, prophets, evangelists, 
teachers. Not every teacher or evangelist or prophet or pastor in Ephesians, and not even every apostle bequeathed to us writings. Not every uh-huh. apostle wrote right. New Testament books. That's right. So this is reading into the text something that is decidedly not there in order to try to get around the very clear until timestamp for the duration of these gifts. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, to me that's an important question because every cessationist that I know wants to hold to the idea that the author's intent and how the original audience would have understood it is is what we want to go by, and yet I'll hear a cessationist say in the next breath that, well, maybe Paul didn't know that the gifts of the Holy Spirit were going to cease. So, in other words, Paul's teaching continuationism, but now we are later to have a different hermeneutic than what Paul originally intended. It, it seems to be inconsistent. I I find it really odd that an argument for cessationism is the ignorance of the Apostle Paul. I would, I'm, I'm a I'm little, take I'm Paul's a, theology I'm a little reluctant to go down that I've, path. I've heard that argument relatively recently, <laughs> and I, yeah. was, I was rather shocked to find that the argument that we're going to lean on is, yeah, Paul didn't know. But we do. But we we for sure have figured it, it out. That, again, comes I mean, back into question, which, the sufficiency of Scripture. It, are the Scriptures sufficient to say these things will yeah, stop? Which, and that's not what... The, these are these are Bible-believing Christians, but that is what the, the same argument that the progressive Christians are using these days to argue against... Uh, yeah. to, to argue against cardinal Christian yeah. orthodoxy. Oh, yeah. They, they also that there was a trajectory that was mm-hmm. put in motion by Paul and the New Testament authors that really never came to its consummation, but we have now arrived at a higher, more complete ethic than what the apostles themselves Mm -hmm. had embraced. Wow, you talk about the insufficiency of Scripture. That is a massive indictment of the sufficiency of God's Word. And kind of like an epistemological undercutting, like part of what, I say epistemological, maybe that's not even the right word, but like part of the way that God is expressing himself in the body of believers, I think of Ephesians 3, the love of God, you know, Rooting, grounded, love to string together, together with all the saints, to know the breadth, length, depth, height of the, love of God, of the love of God, and to know God's love that surpasses knowledge, like this experiential kind of love. Jack speaks about it all the time. But this idea that that God is communing with His people, and that He found it to be necessary. Tongues was necessary. Prophecy was necessary. Uh, 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 words of knowledge, words of wisdom, interpretation. These things were necessary in the first century, but somehow we're we have this chronological snobbery. Like we don't need that crutch now. They needed right. it back then. Yeah. But we've we're better. Like that. That is that baffles me. Yeah. Yeah. I got I got some other arguments. Can I? Yeah. Yeah. Can yeah, I yeah, yeah lay them yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, All yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. Here's one. And I would, this is just a challenge I would issue to any any Christian reading the Bible trying to come to a, a decision on this. Read through the New Testament and ask yourself if you ever come across a single text that portrays spiritual gifts in anything other than a positive light. They are always portrayed positively. When you look in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and 1 Peter 4, 1 Thessalonians 5, gifts are always positive. Now, immature, um, ambitious, carnal people can do goofy things with gifts, but that's not the fault of the gifts. That's the fault of the individuals. So, when I and the reason I say this is because I hear cessationists sometimes say, "Look, you need to go slow. These gifts are going to get you into trouble. There's something about them that might open the door to demonic invasion. You want to speak in tongues? Watch out! A demon can enter into your life if you try to pray in tongues." And I just say, "Here, good old Jack, where's that in the Bible? 
Mm-hmm. Where in the Bible does it ever say that these gifts are to be um, feared, that somehow they have this intrinsic inherent danger? They're going to expose you to, to uh, alien forces. They're going to weaken your trust in Christ. They are always portrayed positively. They are, and I just say to people, look, if, if spiritual gifts have in some way been a problem in your church, it's not with the gifts. God created them. They are God's idea. God thought up the idea of speaking in tongues. If yeah. there's a problem that you and I have with it, that's on us, not on him. That's a that's a, a good one and an important one, I think. Because for, for me, my big roadblock coming out of cessationism really was the gift of tongues. And if I was really honest with myself, what I didn't like about it, it's just weird. Oh, it's weird. It's weird. And so my, my hermeneutic was the hermeneutic of just not weird stuff. <laughs> yeah. and, um, but tongues is called a gift, a spiritual gift. It comes from God. And I think that's, if we view the gifts of God as a curse, then we're not understanding God or the Bible rightly. And, 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 and I would just say, if we properly understand what tongues is, it isn't weird. I mean, it, it used to yeah. strike me that way as well. But when you understand that in virtually all instances today, with some exceptions, it's the Spirit of God crafting for each individual believer to whom the gift is given a unique capacity to articulate cognitively substantive ideas that are communicated directly to the heart of God that we do not understand. They transcend our rationality. They don't contra- they're don't they not contradicting it. They do transcend it. But I would say to people, if you got on an airplane and you flew to an international conference, let's say in Geneva, Switzerland, and you were mingling before the, and you heard there are over, people over here speaking German, some over here speaking Mandarin, over here Spanish, over here English, and you just heard this cacophony of different languages, would you say, well, you all are weird? Mm-hmm. No, we, we, we know that they're actually speaking substantive, meaningful languages. Tongues is not gibberish. It may sound like it, but guess what? When I listen to somebody speak Mandarin, it sounds like gibberish to me. Mm-hmm. I was next uh, on the plane with a guy from India coming down here from uh, Dallas, and he was talking on his cell phone in whatever Indian dialect he was using. And I didn't sit there and say, boy, you're weird. No, mm-hmm. he was using his language. Speaking in tongues is a heavenly language crafted by the Spirit to enable us to communicate beyond our own limited capacities, our heart's desire, our gratitude, and our praise to God. And you, you made the, the the statement just a moment ago that cessationists have said in times past, and, and some today, that if you open yourself up to tongues, if you ask for tongues, you could be filled with a demon. Now, not only does the Bible not say that, but in fact, the Bible expressly says the opposite, that if you ask God for a gift, he'll give you the Holy Spirit, or he'll give you a gift is what it says not a scorpion not a scorpion mm-hmm. yeah. not a snake yeah. but a good gift and by the way exact opposite scorpions and snakes are oftentimes biblical language for demons in That's the bible right. and he said don't jesus said don't worry god's not going to do you see your loving heavenly father for heaven's sake and can you say heavenly father for heaven's sake yeah he's <laughs> yeah. he's not he to he's not going to hurt you harm you uh rebuke you consign you to you know, lunacy because you asked him for one of the gifts that he has crafted for your building up. Yeah. So the the portrait in the New Testament is, is consistently good. Then we have 
uh, the simple fact that all through the New Testament, non-apostles exercise these gifts. Yeah. And because that's a big cessationist argument. Only apostles exercise these gifts or those who somehow had apostolic hands laid on them. And that's just simply not true. I mean, we, we went through this in our discussion of cessationism, but all through the book of Acts, Philip's four daughters are called prophetesses. I've always said, can you imagine dinner conversation at Philip's home with four daughters who are all prophetic? Yeah. must have been fascinating. But um, you got Ananias. You've got uh, the, 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 the Christians in Antioch. You've got Galatians 3, 5, no apostolic presence as far as we know, and yet God is working miracles in your midst. Romans 12, prophecy, he mentions there as well. So numerous examples of non-apostolic. Just think of the... Uh, 72 in Luke chapter 10. Anonymous followers of Jesus, not a single apostle among them. Mm -hmm. The demons are subject to us in your name. Mm -hmm. Um, Acts chapter 4, verses 29 to 31, the early church praying, God, extend your hand to perform signs and wonders. So, um, well, Stephen in Acts chapter 7, 120 in the upper room. Philip in Acts chapter 7 and 8, both of whom did signs and wonders. Neither one of them was an apostle. Yeah. So uh, when you look at that, you say, all right, who actually exercises these gifts? It's average Christians. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is saying, this is what ought to happen in every church. Called the body of Christ. The body of Christ. And he doesn't say, oh, but you all can't do that because you're not apostolic or you don't have an mm-hmm. apostle in your local church. So again, all of the arguments that I hear for cessationism just simply don't hold weight. That's why, as we talked before, what's driving it then? And I think... The bottom line is fear and this this notion that somehow if we embrace these gifts, it's going to compromise the integrity of God's written word. Yeah, I love that when you mention about Jesus sending out of the 72, his, uh, his sending them out is actually, it shows Jesus discipling his disciples to do miracles, discipling them in casting out demons and and demonstrating the gospel. So we shouldn't be surprised that when we come to the book of Acts, they continue doing the very thing that he taught them to do overtly. And it seems to follow that if Jesus taught his disciples, not just his 12, but 72, including many unnamed, who most would not call apostles, are there 72, were there 72 apostles? I, so if he taught unnamed disciples that, then it would seem to follow that he intended for his church to follow suit. So, Yeah, and I, and I have people ask, oh, they say, okay, now how do we know that the authority that Jesus gave the 72 is an authority that we can have today? And I say, if anything, ours has to be greater. Agreed. Yeah, They did this pre-Pentecost. They, they did it pre-cross. Jesus hadn't died yet. Mm-hmm. Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead yet. He hadn't ascended to the Father. The Spirit of God hadn't come in fullness. If anything, our exercise of that authority, I think, would be even greater and more effective than theirs. Amen. Good. Yeah, I preached through Matthew uh, at uh, at Wellspring Church, and I, I remember noting the differences because there seemed to be a comparison contrast with Matthew 10 and Matthew 28, where Jesus sends the disciples first to the lost sheep of Israel, but then to the Gentiles, to all nations, first to preach, but then to make disciples— and, and first, he gives them authority, but then after the resurrection, he says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. It seems like Matthew is actually making the overt argument that everything is greater now that Jesus has been crowned, christened, cosmic Lord. Amen. So Excellent. 
Well, guys, we're at the point of that show where we got to wrap things up because we've got another session that we've got to get to. I typically do closing thoughts during this time, but I just want to thank you, Sam, for coming on. And well, thank, thank you, so you for having you me can, here. It's been it's been good. I've enjoyed this. You yeah. can follow up with both the pastors at this table at Bridgeway. Um, just go to is it Bridgeway.com or org? Bridgewaychurch.com. There you go. You, you got to learn that. So anyway, blessings, guys. We'll see you next time. And uh, yeah, look, look forward to some of these videos that are coming out. We had a roundtable. Did I explain what we did? Jack, Sam, Matt Chandler, uh, uh, Jeff, Jeff Wells, from, uh, Jeff Wells from the, the pastor of this church here. Awesome conversation that uh, that y'all probably be seeing sometime this week or next. Yep. So yep. blessings, guys. We'll see you next time. Want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classroom. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.